Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3. The subject we're really addressing today is the bulk of Matthew 3 and Luke 3, which is the baptism of Christ. So if you go to Matthew chapter 3, we read in verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Now that's Isaiah. So now he's going to quote Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John is the quintessential messenger of God. That's really what he's doing, and he's trying to make the paths straight. Now, that passage is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 40, and Isaiah 40 reads as follows, verse 1, "'Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned.' For she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And the voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. This passage in Isaiah 40 has a lot going on with it, but one of the things we read in the very first verse is a second-person plural imperative in Hebrew. This is the divine counsel where the Lord is saying to a bunch of people, go and give comfort to my people. Why? Their warfare is accomplished. The messengers of God, the ministers or the angels or the servants of God are to go forth and spread the message. And the message is one of comfort. And then what's the message? The message is in verse 3, 4, and 5 of Isaiah 40. It's this message to prepare the people to meet the Lord. And that is the role that John is fulfilling. John is the quintessential messenger of God. That's really what he's doing, and he's trying to make the paths straight. This is what missionaries do. They are told by God, go and send this message of comfort to my people. And that image of the people being like grass and the flowers of the field will be repeated in Matthew 6, when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, speaking in a temple context 
of the idea that the grass and the flowers are clothed and the people shall be clothed when they approach God. This is what John is doing in Matthew chapter 3. He is preparing the way for the Lord to make his path straight, and his message is one of change. The word is going to be used often in the Gospels, metanoia, which is this idea that's translated into English as repent or repentance. Metanoia is this change of your mind. We kind of make adjustments, and that idea is going to be a core message of what John's trying to do to prepare people to meet Jesus. And that's why I love how Matthew and Luke present it, as repentance is what's calling in the wilderness to come back and prepare the way and let Jesus into your life. Now, let's take a look at how Matthew and Luke are using Isaiah. In Matthew's version, chapter 3, verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist preaching, saying, in verse 2, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now verse 3, for this is he. Now circle the word this in your scriptures and draw a line back to the antecedent, back to what it's emphasizing. Is John the one that we're speaking of, or is it repentance? What if repentance is what's in the wilderness crying unto the people? What if the message of repentance is like one crying from the wilderness? All my life, I read it as John was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, but then one day I changed how I viewed it. All of a sudden, I connected the word this to the process of repentance, and my whole world opened up. In this church, we really struggle to put a clear definition on repentance. Some of us teach us as a list, and there's pros and cons to that. It's helpful for youth to see steps of repentance, but that can be very dangerous for someone who missed a step or sees it as a process only. And so all of a sudden, I connected the word this to the process of repentance, and my whole world opened up. So let's look at it that way, but let's turn to Luke's account to do it. Quoting Isaiah in verse 5 of Luke 3, he says, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. Now again, making the comparison that repentance is our subject here, then sometimes when I transgress, I push Jesus away from me, and I build a mountain between us. I like how King Benjamin words it in Mosiah chapter 2, where he says that when we sin, we do separate ourselves from the Holy Spirit. I've created a mountain between me and the Savior. Repentance is simply tearing down that mountain. And if you'll focus less on the actual steps I have to take and more on the end result is that Jesus comes back into my life. The thing I love about the Book of Mormon is that no two people repent the same way. If you look at the Book of Mormon as illustrating repentance, all the way from the very beginning to the very end, you see so many different versions of repentance. Now, what they all have in common is every single one of them invite Jesus back into their life. But they don't all do it the same way, suggesting there aren't set steps. Repentance is pleading with you to clear the path to let Jesus back in your life. Now, what will Jesus do? This is where you absolutely have to find the JST of Luke chapter 3. In your appendix is an absolute beautiful gem of an addition to Luke. 
JST of Luke 3, 4 through 11. Starting in verse 5, Joseph Smith adds, For behold and lo, he shall come. Now, I would encourage you to circle the word to in the next three verses. This is what Jesus will do if you let him into your life. Number one, he shall come to take away the sins of the world. Clear off the path, let him in so that he will take away sins. Number two, he will come to bring salvation. He will fix what's broken. He will bring salvation to you. Number three, he will gather together those that are lost, even the dispersed and the afflicted. If you have a broken family, if you caused that breakup, then tear the mountain down and get Jesus in your life, and he will gather together what was lost. He can. Number four, he will prepare a way and make possible. You can do all things. Now, granted, you're going to do it his way in his timing, but you can do all things because once you let Jesus into your life, he will prepare a way and make it possible. Number five, he will be a light to those who sit in darkness. If you're the one that has sat in darkness because you pushed Jesus out of your life, then get Jesus into your life and he will bring light. Number six, he will bring to pass the resurrection from the dead. Now, I think this is more symbolic than we realize. Yes, he will bring to pass the resurrection of our dead bodies, but he can bring to pass the resurrection of dead relationships. He can revive anything. Now, again, I'm going to clarify, he'll do it his way in his timing, but he can bring to pass the resurrection of anything that died because I neglected it. He can bring to pass the resurrection of a dead testimony. He can bring to pass the resurrection of a dead marriage if we truly let him. The next one to dwell on the right hand with the Father. Now, I know that's a someday somewhere, but it can be a today. I can taste the fruit of the Father's love. I can dwell with the Father symbolically and spiritually if I will let Jesus in. That is a fantastic list of seven wonderful things that He will do if I fill every valley and tear down the mountain that is separating him from me, or straighten the path that I've made crooked, or smooth the path that I've made rough. And that is something I can do every day. I can measure my repentance at any moment of the day by, you know what, I feel like I've pushed him away, and I want to pull him back in. So now let's do a few examples. John is going to say, bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, meaning bring forth actions, show the Lord that you want him back in your life. Now, he's going to give some examples to people in the New Testament, but before we go there, I would encourage you to open up your Book of Mormon and make a list of everyone that you can think of that repents in the Book of Mormon, all the way from Ammon 
and Aaron and Omner and Himni and Alma to Lamoni to Lamoni's wife, all the way down to the Lamanites who repent at the preaching of Nephi and Lehi in the prison. And just see if you can identify in their actions a fruit that would indicate to you that they are trying desperately to get Jesus back in their life. What is the fruit? Now, they're not all going to be the same. You can't make a list and say, well, here's everything that you have to do to repent. That's not what the Book of Mormon is doing. But notice, for example, Alma shows his desire to get the Savior back in his life when he tells his son, from that moment until this, I have not stopped preaching his name. Or the sons of Mosiah zealously strove to repair the damage that they had done. Or Lamoni's father who says, I will give away all my sins to know thee. Man, there's someone who's tearing down that mountain and making that path straight. See if you can identify fruits worthy of repentance. Not necessarily as here's how to repent, but that's an example of someone trying to get the Savior back in their life. You know, Bryce, in my life, I think about that Greek word metanoia, We kind of make adjustments. It doesn't necessarily have to be stop doing bad things. What if I reframe the way I think about religion or reframe the way I think about raising my children? It's not that I was doing it bad, but maybe I was doing it in a way that maybe was not the most effective, which leads us to that other word for sin. That word harmatia literally means, it's an archery term, it means to miss the mark. So if I'm raising a particular son a certain way, and it's not working? Change it. Right. But but I think sometimes we use the word sin and we're like, well, you have sin. And it's like this idea of a mortal sin and you're this condemned person. But no, Bryce, I'm aiming at the target. I just missed the mark. And I'm going to make some adjustments. Yeah. I'm going to fix what I'm doing. Isn't that what halftime is about in football? Like is. they have halftime and they, they call it adjustment. Beautiful. And they're like, okay, we're, we're obviously going to this side of the field more. We're doing this wrong. Let's change it and be more effective. And for me, I mean, I'm sure you have this experience all the time. You read something new and it reframes the way you think about a certain word or a subject. And then you walk away and go, I never knew that before. And now my mind's changed, metanoia. Maybe I'm a little bit more gentle or maybe I'm just different. Even your business, right? Maybe I'm doing something this way, and then I call it... a change. Yeah, I make an adjustment, right? So C.S. Lewis said, repentance can be on a very different level. At the lowest, what you might call pagan penitence, there is simply the attempt to placate a supposedly angry God. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Let me off this time. At the highest level, the attempt is rather to restore an infinitely valued and vulnerable personal relationship, which has been shattered by an action of one's own. If forgiveness in the crude sense of remission of penalty comes, this is valued chiefly as a symptom or a seal or even a byproduct of the reconciliation. It's just what Isaiah said, prepare the way for the Lord getting him back into your life. I want him. I want the relationship with him. That's repentance. Now watch what John is going to do in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 3, verse 10, to the people in general, notice it's people in general who say in verse 10, what shall we do? Well, here's a couple ways you could restore that relationship. 
If you have two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. If you have meat, likewise. So one way we show God we want him in our life is by taking care of what we know is important to him, and that's his children. That's one way to show the Lord that I am preparing the way, is I am going to focus on what I know he focuses on, and that's the happiness of his children and those in need. So then he does another one. Verse 12 are the publicans. These are the tax collectors. So what should a tax collector do? Well, verse 13, he should exact no more than that which is appointed to you. In verse 14, he talks to the soldiers who might have had a tendency in the past to be more cruel in the execution of their office than they should have been. And so he says to them in verse 14, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. As a side note on those two groups, well, really he's addressing three groups. If you look in verse 11, he's addressing those that have. You know, that is a big part of following Christ is to take care of the poor. And then John's addressing two of the most hated groups in Jewish society, the publicans. These are the tax collectors. And that was a farming system, and and it's kind of complicated, but essentially the way it worked was Rome would issue a bidding system to the chief toll collectors, and then they would farm it out to sub-collectors. And you would basically bid, let's say I had a district that I won the bid on, and my bid was, say, $10,000. We'll just use that as an example. I had to collect $10,000 to keep my bid, but whatever I got above that was mine. And so they would charge these high rates, really, really high in some places, to kind of pad their wallet. And essentially what John is saying is, charge the tax, but don't enrich yourself. In other words, don't abuse your power. And that's really what's going on in the next part in verse 14. There's a lot of scholars that believe that these soldiers, a lot of them were actually Jewish citizens that were enforcing Roman law, not necessarily Romans, that these were people that were the most hated in Jewish society. Why? Well, if Bryce and I are Jewish and Bryce is a soldier and he's enforcing Roman law, I don't like you because you're working for the bad guys. And yet the Lord is saying, no, you, even though these are the most hated groups in Jewish society, John is extending to them this olive branch. No, you do matter. God knows who you are. And if you're going to be a tax collector, then don't abuse your power. And I think that message can be relevant to all of us. Every one of us has a circle of influence and a specific amount of power, and I think that's a big message. You might be interested in in looking up Zacchaeus in chapter 19, who tells the Lord that he does that exact thing. He is a tax collector, but that's exactly how he collects his taxes. And remember, the Lord said to him, today I must eat with thee. And so you can be a good, honest tax collector and have the Lord rush into your life, just like Zacchaeus did. That's a beautiful example. Let me just end with one more. One of the best ways to get the Savior into your life after you've pushed him away is to make or renew covenants. And so that's why John offers baptism. There's a beautiful JST in Matthew 3 where John says, I indeed baptize you with water upon your repentance. Baptism is a show of, I really do want the Savior in my life. And given that, I want to just point out a discrepancy that I think is beautiful. In Matthew's version of the Savior's baptism, 
the voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Joseph Smith adds the phrase, hear ye him. That's as if the father were speaking to the audience. This is my beloved son. But in Mark and Luke's version of this, he doesn't say it that way. The voice is heard from the father saying, thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. And I think you could take that personally. That if you want this, if you are just trying your very best to clear that path and prepare the way for Jesus to come into your life, then one of the best ways to do that is to sincerely, deliberately make or renew covenants. Those of you who are lifelong members of the church, you go to that sacrament table with a determination to be better this week. I'm going to be closer to the Spirit. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to do all the things that pushed him away this last week. That if you will sincerely make or renew a covenant with full determination to keep it this time, you can hear the Father say to you, Thou art my beloved son or daughter. In thee I am well pleased. I think that's a beautiful example of how to use covenants to clear the path and straighten it. That's good. Now, after he speaks with the soldiers, I'm in Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he be the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, whose latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. Now that verse 18 could be its own bit of scripture. Can you imagine if Luke included the rest of the things that John taught? But I want to briefly comment on verse 17. This image of a fan in his hand and the purging of the floor, we're back to the idea of the threshing floor. And so what John's talking about here is bringing in the grain. And so bundles of sheaves were brought down to the threshing floor and they would be laid out flat. And the floor, the threshing floor usually was made of stone. And then these stalks or these straw husks would be laid down with the heads of grain that would be shredded as the animals tread over them. And they would pull a sledge a lot of times that would kind of grind that grain away from its surrounding husk material. So then following the threshing was this winnowing process that took place. And this winnowing process separated the grain from the husks. And so there would be this item called a winnowing fork, sometimes called a fan is what it's translated here in the King James. And the threshed mixture would be tossed into the air And then the afternoon evening breezes that would come off the Mediterranean Sea during the time of harvest would carry the husks and the chaff, the the stuff you don't want, it would kind of blow that away into its own pile. And then the seeds would make a pile immediately below the person with the fan in their hand. And they would just do this over a long time and the wind would blow away that chaff. 
And that image of bringing in the seeds at the threshing floor, that is the message of the temple. We are the seeds being gathered in to the threshing floor, which was the the Holy of Holies. It's this idea of coming back into the Father's presence. And this is what God wants. He wants to bring us into his presence. And how do we do this? Verse 16, we receive baptism in the Holy Ghost, and then the stuff in our life that we need to let go of, that we need to metanoia, we need to change our mind, we need to make an adjustment, we let God blow that away. And we become these seeds that are ready to do his work. And that's a beautiful image that John's using. And I think John knows fully well the Old Testament. I think he's a man that's been taught. He's had good parents. This is a man who has read Torah. He knows the law, but he also knows Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah, and he's using Isaiah in the context I think it was meant, which was a message for comfort to the people so that they could change, so that they could come into Christ. Now, we're going to go back and look at his clothing. Let's look at the way he's presented by Matthew. So if you go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, Right after it says, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is how Matthew describes John. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now that presentation should remind us of someone, and that someone is Elijah. John is dressed like Elijah. This to me is rich in symbolism. They're presenting him as an Old Testament prophet pointing to Jesus. John's going to take the scriptures they have, and then we're going to put new wine in new wineskins. Jesus is the manifestation of all the things that the Old Testament has been pointing to, and we're going to do things new. The Latter-day Saint scholar Julie Smith lays out several ideas associated with this image of John appearing in this way at the beginning of Mark's account. So we also read this in Mark chapter 1, verse 6. And so in Julie Smith's work, she says that John has metaphorically escaped Adam's curse by not having to work by the sweat of his brow in order to eat. He eats what is freely available. That's one way to look at this. Another way to look at this, and and Bryce is going to talk about this in a second, is this idea that John has rejected human community, and he only eats what he can get for himself, presenting John as an ascetic, like he's almost living as a hermit. I think that's how he's presented a lot in the Gospels, as a man who is a hermit, kind of living out on his own, and we're going to push back on that here in a minute. Another way to look at this is because this food would have been easily accessible in the wilderness, John would have been able to focus on his ministry. Why? Well, he's just eating what's available, and he's not having to do a lot of the things that are associated in the ancient world with getting food. And so because he's doing this, he can focus on just preaching. That's another way to look at it. Another way to see this is that the diet of locusts and honey would have made observance of purity laws very simple for John, since these foods would not have been handled by anyone else, and wild honey would not be subject to tithing. Now, if you're interested in that, the idea of wild honey versus domesticated honey and the tithing laws, we put it in the show notes. The Hebrew Bible also links honey to this idea of God caring for his children. We read that in Exodus 3 and Deuteronomy 32. So perhaps John's diet, like his clothing, 
is one of the ways that he preaches. In other words, these are props that John is using to send a message. I think that's another way to look at this. And then finally, while John is dressing like Elijah, he doesn't eat like Elijah. Elijah was fed by the ravens. We read about that in 1 Kings 17.6. So perhaps this presentation of John and his diet is teaching us that while John is fulfilling the role of Elijah, he is not literally Elijah. Now, I like all of those possibilities. I think Julie Smith has done some great work on this, and we put her stuff in the show notes, and you can go and read it. And so those are some different ways to kind of look at John and the way he's presented. But let's talk a little bit about, okay, but was he an ascetic? Was he a hermit? I love this commentary for Elder Bruce R. McConkie, who wrote a Messiah series like none other. He, in the very introduction, says it was time to pick up Jesus the Christ from James E. Talmadge and take the next step. So he gives us six books on the Messiah's life, from pre-mortal Messiah, four versions of the mortal Messiah, and then a millennial Messiah. In book one of the mortal Messiah, speaking of John's coming, Elder McConkie says the following, We know John was in the desert for a period of trial and testing and training, perhaps not very much different from Jesus' 40 days of fasting and testing in the wilderness as he began his ministry, but we do not know much else about his early life. The New Testament is not a biography of Jesus, let alone of John. The idea that our Lord's forerunner was a Nazarite for life had never cut his hair or married, and that he lived always in the deserts is speculation that cannot be true. We can think of no good reason why the Lord would send one of his servants off into the deserts for 30 years to prepare him for the ministry. Men are prepared to serve their fellow men by associating with them and by learning of their foibles and idiosyncrasies and how they will react to spoken counsel and proffered help. It is true John did not drink wine or strong drink, that he went into the desert for a testing period before his ministry, and that while there he ate locust and wild honey, and that he came forth among the people wearing what was in their mind the prophetic garb, raiment woven from camel's hair held in place by a leather girdle. We suppose this mode of dress was simply to alert the people to his prophetic status for the period of his ministry was to be short, and he needed to attract as much attention as possible. That he was married, had children, and lived as normal a life as his ministerial assignments permitted, we cannot doubt. End quote. So I think Bruce McConkie is opening up, what if we don't have the whole story? The gospel really is participatory, and we work together. And in this rubbing shoulders together, we kind of take away each other's rough edges. And so while I appreciate the way John is portrayed as an ascetic out there in the wilderness, I also am open to this idea that John may have lived this way temporarily, but maybe, like Elder McConkie says, this was not his permanent station. This would not be unlike a missionary that goes to a foreign land and speaks their language and eats their food, but it's not a permanent condition. And so I think if we're open to this, it kind of gives us some flexibility to read the text and be open to new ways of thinking. And we're back to that idea of metanoia. Our minds change, we kind of make adjustments, and I think that flexibility, to me, is a good reading of the text. 
So now let's ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? I'm going to start in Matthew's account, Matthew 3, where John says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Now I'm going to read the JST of Matthew 3, where Jesus says, Suffer me to be baptized of thee, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now there's a doctrine there that we need to address, and it's very related to all of our covenants, specifically temple covenants. In what way does it fulfill all righteousness for Jesus to be baptized? Well, thank goodness we have the Book of Mormon that actually picks up that doctrine and answers it very clearly. In 2 Nephi chapter 31, verse 6, he asks that very question, I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness in being baptized by water. So perhaps we need to understand that baptism is more than just the entrance into the church. It's more than just a cleansing of all your previous sins so that you start with a clean slate. We often present baptism as for the remission of sins, and if that were the case, then the Savior has no sins and wouldn't need to be baptized. Jesus had a clean slate, and he didn't need to have it cleansed. So in what way does baptism fulfill all righteousness? Well, Nephi's going to answer the question in verse 7. Again, 2 Nephi 31, 7, to show you how the Book of Mormon restores the plain and precious things that we believe been lost from the Bible. Know ye not that he was holy, but notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men, so one, he did it as an example, that... According to the flesh, he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. In other words, baptism is how we make the first great covenant with God and obey the first law of heaven. No one can get back to the Father without signing the document that I will obey the law of obedience. In our day, we sign on papers when we make an oath. I can go into a car lot and drive away with that car as long as I leave my signature. It's my binding oath that I will, over time, pay for that car. We have to do the same thing with the Lord. We have to commit, and the first law of heaven is the law of obedience. Jesus had to obey the law of obedience. Notice he witnessed unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. The way we witness unto the Father is by going into the waters of baptism. Let me give you another Book of Mormon scripture. Turn to Alma chapter 7. Alma has left the judgment seat, and he's trying to explain the people of Gideon why we get baptized. Notice he says in verse 15, I say unto you, come and fear not, and lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you. There's our natural man, which doth bind you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth and show unto your God that you are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments and witness it unto him this day by going down into the waters of baptism. 
In other words, the immersion in the water is the signing of the document that I covenant to keep the first law of heaven, and that is, I will obey his commandments. Now, an ordinance is simply a covenant with a token. The token quite often symbolizes the covenant. So we go into water to symbolize the death and the burial of the obstacle to make that covenant, the natural man. I promise to kill the natural man and bury him so that I will obey his commandments. And the Lord can produce a different ordinance, which simply changes the token, but repeats the covenant. So now, instead of filling the font every single week for all of us, he takes a piece of bread and a cup of water, and he uses those as the token to renew that same covenant. It is the law of obedience renewed. It is the first law of heaven. Will you keep Heavenly Father's commandments? Yes. Well, witness it by partaking of the sacrament. That's why Jesus had to be baptized. He, as well as everyone else, cannot get back to the Father without a firm declaration that he will keep the first law of heaven, which is obedience. And so he witnessed unto the Father by going down into the waters of baptism. Now back to Nephi, he then picks it up and says in verse 10, after his baptism, he said unto the children of men, follow thou me. Now, notice that Nephi's interpretation of that isn't so much follow me into the waters of baptism, it's follow me into the covenant. So, Nephi says, wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus, save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? Now, when he was baptized... The Holy Ghost descended. Now, notice Luke's account. The Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. Yeah. Now, the prophet Joseph Smith said this about the dove. He said, The sign of the dove was instituted before the creation of the world, a witness for the Holy Ghost. And the devil cannot come in the sign of a dove. The Holy Ghost is a personage and is in the form of a personage. It does not confine itself to the form of the dove but in the sign of the dove. The Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove, but the sign of a dove was given to John to signify the truth of the deed, and the dove is an emblem or token of truth and innocence. That's Joseph Smith. And I think that it's interesting, all the gospel writers include this sign, this sign of the dove. And so it's important. I mean, if we read something and all four writers are are hitting these marks— That's an important thing. Yeah. You'll also find John bearing record of that dove in Doctrine and Covenants 93, verse 15. Notice that sandwiches between the three verses that say he didn't have a fullness. And then in verse 16, I, John, bear record he received a fullness. So perhaps that dove was more than just a sign that he was destined to be the Messiah. Maybe the dove, the way I see it, is the dove came as the sign that he is now the Messiah in all his fullness and glory. 
Maybe John didn't need to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe John needed to know when the switch got turned and he was no longer in preparation and was now in full mode mission as Messiah with a fullness. And so I think the placing of verse 15 in section 93 between those three verses and then verse 16 suggests to me that the sign of the dove told John that Jesus was now here in all his glory and all his fullness. Yeah. I certainly think there's lots of ways to read this. So everything I'm about to say, I look at these and go, this is really interesting. I like all of it. And so here's some possible things that we can examine and just consider. I think for one thing, the, the dove is a symbol of the Holy Ghost. The dove is also a symbol, and we talked about this earlier in other podcasts, of the Divine Mother. The Divine Mother and her and one of her symbols in all of these ancient cultures was a dove. Now, the dove could also be seen as a symbol for innocence or purity. And so in a sense, if you couple this with Jesus's baptism, Jesus here is the embodiment of all that is pure and all that is holy. He himself is a foreshadowing of what he intends to do to me and to you and to all of Israel. To some, the dove was seen as a symbol for Israel itself. And so this could be another way of seeing this as the unification of God with us, Jesus, as the God of the cosmos, as John's going to call him, unified with Israel. And also, if we read Leviticus chapter 1, the dove was used for sacrifices. So what if the gospel authors are also putting this symbol in with Jesus at his baptism as a foreshadowing of what is to come? Now, Also, it's good to know this, that there were some people that were in the audience that were hearing this story. Remember, a lot of these things were told orally, and Julie Smith and her scholarship really creates the argument that the gospel of Mark was a performance, that it was something that you actually saw performed. I remember once, uh, Bryce, I was at a, a symposium, and there was an individual who quoted the entire book of John on stage. He had the whole thing memorized, and he performed it with parts in front of a live audience, and I literally pulled out my scriptures to check if he was getting it right, and Bryce, he was nailing it, the whole thing in his head. And so I am actually in the space of what if some of these things were performed, and there were members of the audience from other cultures. Remember, these messages are disseminated in Greek. And so we kind of have to step out of our Old Testament worldview and ask, okay, well, how would a Greek person view this? And so members of the audience familiar with Greek mythology would understand Mark chapter 1, verse 10, and I'm going to read it, straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open. Now that word in the Greek is literally the heavens are being ripped open, like the veils being torn, and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. You see, members in the audience that were Greek would look at this and they would say, oh, I know what this is doing. If you read Homer and you're familiar with some of these ideas in Greek thought, in the Iliad we read many examples of the gods in heaven sending down blessings to mortals in the form of a bird or in the form of a dove. Sometimes the gods come down and the sign of this dove is this sign that God is with them. That probably was a message that would have been communicated to some of the people in the audience. They would see this and they would say, oh, God is with Jesus, or Jesus is a God as man. Now, 
if we step out of that worldview and we get back into the Hebrew worldview, in Jewish tradition, this idea of the Ruach, the, the Spirit, hovering over the waters would have been identified with a dove. We have this idea of the, the Ruach, the word for Spirit, that would have been a message to the people in the audience that were uh, Hebrew speakers that the Spirit of God is with them. We read this in Genesis 1 verse 2, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face mm-hmm. of the waters. That's what it says in the King James, but it, probably a better translation of that second part of verse 2 is that the Ruach of the Elohim is brooding upon the waters or hovering, and that's this image of a mother hen hovering over her eggs. And it's also this new creation. We have waters, we have the heavens in the plural being opened in a new creation. So one way to look at this is that Jesus is the manifestation of something new. Just like Genesis 1, we're taking chaos, tohu and bohu, and the Ruach is brooding on it, and then God is saying, let there be light, and we're creating something new. Jesus is creating something new. Now, the dove could also be read from a Hebrew mindset as the story that the crisis was over. You see in Genesis 8 verse 11, the dove comes to send a message that the chaos has been conquered. And I love this line, death is conquered, man is free, Christ has won the victory. That's hymn number 199, Christ has won the victory. That dove, Genesis 8.11, a sign that the chaos has been conquered. So those are several ways that this sign can be read. I think they're all beautiful. And so with that, we're going to shift and we're going to talk about a couple of things. Luke is doing something here in the baptism narrative that the other authors aren't doing. If you go to Luke chapter 3, right after verse 22, where the Holy Ghost descends in bodily shape like a dove upon him... Then Luke frames this story, starting in verse 23, Luke talks about his genealogy. Here's where we got Jesus. But if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 3, Luke opens up chapter 3 with another part of the frame, which is Jesus is coming to this world in the midst of a historical circumstance. And he gives seven characters and I think that's significant, he gives seven characters that lived during Jesus's time. So what Luke's trying to do, and I think he's he's really good at this, is he's trying to show us, okay, no, Jesus was a historical person, and he came to a specific time frame when these people were in charge, and I find it interesting that he starts at the top with the emperor, and then he goes down in descending order all the way to the high priest top to bottom, and then he tells you about Jesus. Now, here's kind of my take on those verses, verses one and two. I think what he's also doing is kind of thumbing his nose at all these guys. I think he's saying, yeah, they're in charge. Well, they think they're in charge. Jesus is in charge. So if we start in Luke 3, verse 1, I'm just going to read the verses, and then we're going to look at these characters. Verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came into John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Okay, that's the frame at the beginning of Luke 3. Those are the seven characters. We'll go through them slow. We put this in the show notes for you, and it's in the slides. 
So if you go to the slide that's titled John's Day, the Historical Setting, the first individual is the Emperor Tiberius, and he's reigning at this time from 15 to 34 Common Era. Now, he's in Rome, but Pontius Pilate is not. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 Common Era, and he's taking the territory known as Judea, and on the map that we have here, it's yellow. Now, this territory is really Archelaus's territory. Archelaus was a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the governor of the land from about 40 BC to 4 BC. He's the Herod that's killing the babies in the beginning of Matthew. He has a bunch of sons, and one of them is Herod Archelaus. But according to the histories, Herod Archelaus was so brutal with the Jews, and he was so unpopular, Archelaus was deprived of his throne. Archelaus was half Idumean and half Samaritan, and like his father, was considered to be an alien oppressor by his Jewish subjects. Their repeated complaints against him in Rome caused Augustus to order Archelaus to come to Rome in AD 6. After a trial in which he was unsuccessfully defended by the future emperor Tiberius, Archelaus was deprived of his throne and he was exiled to Gaul. Now that's France. So Archelaus goes from being in charge of all the area where Jerusalem is to being kicked out and sent to France. And so we read about him in the beginning of Matthew. If you go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, it was the fear of Archelaus' tyranny that led Jesus' family not to go settle into the hills of Judea, but to go up to Nazareth because that area was not controlled by Archelaus. So in 6 AD, he's removed and Roman rulers are appointed. And the Roman ruler that's in charge in Jesus' day is Pontius Pilate. The next individual that's discussed is Herod the Tetrarch, and he is also called Herod Antipas. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, he's called Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. And so he rules over two districts. He rules over the part on the map that's purple, the area up around the Sea of Galilee and in the area east of the Jordan. The next individual is Philip, the Tetrarch of Ituria, and Philip is ruling the part on the map that is colored green, and it's the landmass that's east of the Sea of Galilee. Philip is going to rule over the northeast part of his father's kingdom from about 4 BCE to 34 CE, so during the time of the Gospels. Philip is a half-brother of Herod Antipas and Herod Archelaus. So we also put in the show notes a document called Herod the Great and the Herodian Family Tree, because the bottom line is it can be kind of confusing because Herod the Great, the man that rules Judea from about 40 BC to 4 BC, is a complicated fellow. He has lots of wives, and he has lots of children, and when he dies, they kind of carve up his territory into these pieces, and the rulers are called Tetrarchs, and they're all called Herod. So you pick up the Gospels, and you read it, and you're thinking, okay, who is this? Which Herod is this? And sometimes the authors tell you, and then sometimes they use different names. So we use phrases like Herod the Tetrarch and Herod Antipas. And if you don't know this, you're like, are those two different people? And the answer is no, it's the same guy. And so Philip the Tetrarch is the individual that rules over Ituria. He's a half-brother of these other Herods. 
Then we come to our fifth regional governor, and that's Licinius. He's the Tetrarch of Abilene, which is territory north of Galilee. So those five individuals are political authorities. Then we get to spiritual authorities, our sixth and seventh characters, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests. And it's interesting how he calls Annas and Caiaphas the high priests in the plural, but there's really only one. And so I think what he's kind of doing there is saying, hey, listen, Caiaphas is just doing what Annas tells him to do. That's my take. It doesn't say that, but I'm sticking to it. I think that's what's going on. Caiaphas is the current high priest during Jesus's ministry. He's the individual that Jesus is going to have a conversation with. He is not a nice person. And his father-in-law is Annas. So that is the historical bit right before Luke talks about Jesus and his baptism. And then after he's baptized, Luke talks about his genealogy. Now, Bryce and I talked about the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, but here we read the genealogical line through Joseph. Now, we know Joseph's not his father, but that's who Luke is presenting in this genealogical line. But let's be absolutely clear. Both of them are presenting the idea that had the throne of David continued beyond the Babylonian captivity, had that been passed down as it should have been, the literal king of the Jews would have been Jesus of Nazareth, that he was in that Davidic line, that he's not just symbolically the king of the Jews, he is literally the king of the Jews, had that descendancy continued. Yeah. To me, that's why we have Joseph in here, because that was the assumption. Hey, Jesus is the son of Joseph, and I love how it says in parentheses in the English in verse 23, as was supposed. And then we go down the lines of all these individuals in Jesus's line, much more detailed than Matthew's genealogy. And then we finally get to verse 38, the last part of Luke 3 which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. The author of Luke is tracing Jesus's lineage all the way to Adam and then calling Adam a son of God. Now that last verse is very significant. We'll leave it to you to ponder, but I just want to quote Elder McConkie says, referring to Luke chapter 3 verse 38 in his doctrinal New Testament commentary, Elder McConkie says, This statement, found also in Moses 6.22, has a deep and profound significance and also means what it says. Father Adam came, as indicated, to this sphere, gaining an immortal body because death had not yet entered the world. Jesus, on the other hand, was the only begotten in the flesh meaning into a world of mortality where death had already reigned. I leave that to you. If you find significance in that and want to ponder that, if not, brush it aside. I like this statement by Elder Maxwell, where he said, We can wait, as we must, to learn later whether Matthew's or Luke's account of Jesus' Davidic descent is correct. Meanwhile, the Father has, on several occasions, given us Jesus' crucial genealogy. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I think that's a really powerful message. Yeah. So this week, as you read about the Savior's baptism, 
I would encourage you to pull your class or your family together and say, what are some of the ways we today in our lives show the Savior that my path, I'm doing all that I can to clear my path and bring the Savior into my life that I've pushed away? That's a great discussion to have this week. And I believe each one of us, if we truly keep those covenants and renew them with full intent of our heart, can hear him say to us, Thou art my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.